Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. Well, you have to find out what they really want for their business and personally and working with them and also helping them keep focused. And that's why, you know, I became certified in the infinite breath method started by Greg Mannion, a former street performer and a recovered alcoholic who created this. And I said, that's what I'm going to add to my artistic programs, because not just the business and the outreach, but also real world techniques that you can use to ground yourself in tough situations, how to deal with the resistance. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hi there. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Emily Durr. Emily is the founder of Grassroots Impact Creative Coach. She helps creative people break through resistant and coaches creative businesses to craft messaging and build community. I found Emily on LinkedIn and she mentioned her money mindset work with a coach in Australia. And I wanted to bring her on to the Mindful Money Podcast to talk about two things, resistance and the artist's proclivity to devalue their work. Emily, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you. And I know this is a, it's an important topic. So first, before we get into it, where do you call home and where are you connecting from now? So I'm connecting from Connecticut, Stanford specifically, right outside of New York City, about 40 minutes or so. All right. And uh, did you grow up there or did you grow up someplace oh, else? I was born in Michigan. You know, went to the Cranbrook School in Bloomfield Hills, which is known for the arts. I went to Syracuse, received my degree, you know, visual and performing arts, you know, fashion design, decided I didn't want to do that. Moved to Colorado because I thought I wanted to own a store out in Colorado. Realized that wasn't the dream. I lived in Vail and Breckenridge. And then I thought I'll move back to the New York area, which I know. And there were no jobs during 2008, except for, you know, opening stores for a retail company in Connecticut. So that's what. I made Stanford my home. Got it. So Syracuse University? Yes. So my son's top two choices are UCLA's music school and then the Syracuse music school. And I think he just committed to UCLA. (laughs) But that was his second choice. Well, good for him though. Both wonderful schools. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. So how you were in Michigan your entire, like your childhood? Yes. To teens and then off to Syracuse college. Got it. So what did you learn about money or entrepreneurship growing up in Michigan? So my father and grandfather, you know, always had investment real estate and they were both surgeons. So they had their own practices. 
you know, since their, you know, thirties and they were entrepreneurs, but in a different set, it was sort of laid out. You went through the school channel and you were placed in the arts. It's very different in medicine. It's very linear in the arts. I thought it was, I was going to have that linear approach. And when my dad tried to advise me, although he supported me in that, he thought it was going to be linear too. You get an MBA after, and really it wasn't so linear. I jumped around and I just felt lost for a bit, you know, and I knew I always wanted to have my own business. I just wasn't sure what, and I was always managing other people's dreams, like being in management, you know, working, you know, freelancing for other people. Was money a topic in the household growing up? Yes. I mean, there's always money for education. Uh, if I wanted to start a business, oh no, work for someone else first. Oh, go to more school. And, you know, it was never depend on inheriting money or marrying money. It's like you make your own, you go to school, you make your own, your education is something that no one can take from you. And that's, you know, what I learned, you know, and, get, and of course, giving to charitable ins institutions, investing in your education and that it was a pretty healthy money mindset, but there were, I know there were still some blocks and things that I interpreted as a young person, as a teenager and a child that I took to different levels that maybe my parents didn't mean for me to take, to interpret it that way. So like peel that back a little bit, like what okay. was one of the experiences that you took the wrong way? So you know, when dating personally, for example, I'm like, no, I have to make my own money. I have to be established before I can commit to a relationship. That's what I thought. Mm. I said, you know, buy a home myself. I uh, can't be with another person because then you haven't found yourself and you're dependent on them. And that probably, that wasn't really what my parents, they didn't want me to take that level, but I would block out certain relationships or when people would want to give me a chance opportunity, I thought, oh, they're just giving it to me. I have to earn it myself. I can't take it. So I kind of shy away from things. Or, you know, it's almost self-sabotage. I thought, oh, they're trying to help me. They're looking down on me. When really, they liked what I was doing and they wanted to help me. You kind of took the self-reliance to a different level. I did. Yeah, I did. And that was not probably not my parents' intention. And I yeah. maybe burnt some bridges in that respect, you know, professionally and even personally. And probably at the same time, you learned how to really rely on yourself. Like, I yes. think there's a value to that lesson. I'm not saying everyone should postpone marriage or postpone having relationships or, or anything like that, but there's a value there. Yes, there is a value. And I did learn a lot and I'm grateful for the opportunity, but sometimes you wonder, or I wonder what would it have been if I pursued that? Would I may have even been off better financially by letting in the help, letting in the opportunities? You never know that. And you can't look back on that. But sometimes I do wonder. And for a while, I would beat myself up about it. Yeah, there was a long period of time after I left. I was on Wall Street firms for about six years of you know my early career before I started my own company. And it was a long time after I started my own company where I wondered if that was not the dumbest thing I've ever done. But then 20 years later, you know, that was the right choice. Like You learn in, in hindsight. Just before we look at the current work you're doing with a Grassroots Impact Creative Coach, just go through the path of getting here. Cause I noticed you like put some retail together, some arts together, some entrepreneurship together to mm -hmm. come up with this thing called grassroots impact. So I originally, I was freelancing for an artist and volunteering on boards. I like nonprofit boards, you know, pro bono work and the artist, she was paying me. So I was doing, you know, social media work, public relations. I would help the artist with her shows. I would sometimes help these nonprofit events you know, on these event committees. And there's a museum where I became communications chair and then vice president of their board. And I said, I want to start a business 
based on the work that I'm doing and create a program. So, you know, the woman I, who helped me purchase my condo, my real estate professional, she has a franchise brokerage business. So I looked into those and I realized that's not really the right fit for me. I spoke to a couple franchises and then I met a business coach through a virtual summit who worked with healers and other coaches to help them start businesses. So we talked and, you know, kind of taking what I was dabbling in freelance and volunteering and turning it into a business. So I did her mastermind. Her name's Beth Weinstein of True Path Coaching during 2020. And, you know, when full-time work in the jewelry industry was put on hiatus, I, you know, had time to commit to this. And I really spent 2020 doing research and finding out what exactly I wanted to, how I wanted to help artists and galleries and creative businesses. And then I realized when I created this program for artists, I really loved the institutional work. I started working with a nonprofit gallery at 2021. We're on our third year working together. And I realized I love the institutional work. So now I'm writing a museum program, consulting program. So I'm interviewing museums across the country about what they need right now and what their struggles and challenges. So that's how grassroots evolved. So actually, I sort of pictured you not working with museums necessarily, but but working with the, not the starving artists, but the thriving artists. Yes. Or, or taking artists from, stri- from starving to thriving. Yes. we. I did have a couple speakers. I f- wanted to focus on that because I read some great books. Maria Brophy, Art Money Success. She was mm-hmm. a guest on one of my, in one of my workshops. And Jeff Goins' book, Real Artists Don't Starve. Corey Huff, The Abundant Artist. And then there was Tad Crawford who did a legal series for artists. He wrote various books. And I read these books and I said, this is so important because a lot of times artists and even including myself, were afraid to negotiate our rates because you're always taught, oh, you take the first opportunity you get, you work really hard. It's not going to pay well. So you said, well, the next opportunity will pay better. And when I move up, I'll negotiate. And then you realize you've left a lot of money on the table, which I might myself have in various positions. It had nothing to do with not having the education because I had the education and people were always saying, oh, you have a great resume of this. It just, I didn't bother to ask because I wasn't thinking. And so I wanted to instill that in like the artists I work with. That's why I had Nancy Lippman on the show, the Australian, she works with, she was a DJ and then she, you know, wonderful work, you know, getting artists to take care of themselves, particularly musicians to take care of themselves, you know, mentally, emotionally, and then also, really stand in their power and negotiate for what they deserve. And that was really wonderful having her on the show. Yeah. So I'm curious what qualifies as a creative. I mean, I'm I'm asking that because, you know, are we talking about, you know, painters and sculptors or is creative someone who is creative more broad than that? It can be both. I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, what I work with, I mainly work with visual artists, you know, the sculptors, the painters, the writers. I mean, creativity spans a lot. I mean, there's people in the digital fields and in engineering who are creative that, especially in these architects too. So, and it also is a person who is creative, who does think differently, even things like creative problem solving. It's such a broad definition. It isn't just set aside for artists. It's also, you know, for other fields as well. Yeah. I I read a a definition. I was just, as I was preparing for this, I was like, okay, what's a creative field? Who's creative? And it said that the ability to produce something of value that didn't exist before, just that simple. So you think about a painting, a script, 
a product like an iPhone or, you know, a new business model or pretty much anything. I'm wondering if it can expand to like today's influencers or the people that are creating just, you know, tons and tons and tons of content that actually they reap a financial reward because of like marketing online, but they don't really produce anything of value. Do you know what I mean? Is that creative or are they not quite qualified? Well, it depends. I mean, if the influencer is providing really good advice or a new way to deliver that advice, for example, there's this woman called Danielle Collins face yoga that teaches women or men, you know, how to massage their face to, you know, I guess age gracefully and not, use plastic surgery. So, I mean, she had a creative way to take something and deliver it to her clients. She created her own oil. So yeah, she's an influencer. I would consider that's creative. Sometimes if it's one of these influencers that gets up on their platforms and just wants to receive free things and doesn't really create any advice or value or arts, that's not necessarily creative. They just have something, they just have followers. For whatever reason yeah. they lure people in, I don't necessarily think that's creative. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I mean, I have, you know, as I said, my son's looking at colleges right now. He's 18. My daughter's 15. And I just see the plethora of crap that gets pushed across as this is creativity. And don't, you know, how do you get your likes and how do you get people to subscribe? And it just, it drives me a little bit nuts. So I'm glad to, I'm happy to exclude that kind of stuff. But I like the idea of the yoga practitioner who has a process that she uses or a product that she's created. I think that is very creative. And I like to sort of honor that. One of the things, you know, one of the two topics of the day is this idea of resistance. And I read something that you wrote about resistance. And I don't know if you know The War of Art. Yes. Stephen Pressfield. When I read that book, it just changed how I thought about writing. I, my art is writing. So, and this idea of resistance. So can you define for us, what is this resistance? Sometimes artists have a tendency or creative people either do not want to be seen, they're afraid of being seen, and they just don't want to do their work. There's so much anxiety, or they have other commitments that they procrastinate. I've had the resistance too, like procrastinate. I'm like, oh my God, what if you know my full-time boss at my day job sees this? Or what if I offend the artist? What if they think that I'm taking advantage of them? So I would just stay off social media. I would hide. You know, so that mm. was my resistance or I'd procrastinate or when I was doing that, when I was time to write my program that I'd be presenting to artists for, you know, I had to interview different artists and find out what their challenges were during the pandemic and create a program around the challenges. So during the research thing, I had no problem listening to them, but when it came down to put down the program and write it, I was so resistant. I either procrastinate or I just rush through it to get it done. But resisting the really sitting down there with that and thinking about what, I wanted to do as a program and what would be most valuable for them. So that was to me, you know, that my form of resistance. I guess there's an obvious answer, but we can peel it back a little bit. How do you think this resistance affects a creative person's life and income? Well, if they're turning away opportunities or not making deadlines or procrastinating and hiding, they're not going to get their work out there. So they're not going to get paid and they'll miss out. And then maybe feelings of, inadequacy, or sometimes they have the resistance is because they have feelings of imposter syndrome. Like, oh, I don't deserve to be here. There's so-and-so who's already doing this or so-and-so has so many. And I was looking at some of the great art authors that I was reading and I'm like, they offer this really amazing mastermind for X amount of dollars per month. How do I compete with that? Or wow. You know, so I felt the same way other creative people that I wanted to hide. 
And I didn't say, what could I offer? And that can get people to stop creating. And it just kind of eats away at you. And, and then you're not doing what you love and you're not, you're probably not making any money if that's, or not making, you know, as much as you could be. Right. Again, in preparing, do you know the quote, Marianne Williams, Williamson's quote, you know, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Yes. How often, or, or how much do you think this idea of, you know, we are awesome, but we aren't living up to our potential and we know that, and we're terrified of that potential and that gap. How much do you think that plays into, you know, the hiding? Oh, I think it totally plays into that. You're terrified to try something new. You're terrified to leave your day job or jump off the ledge and be more visible because it could be, gee, what if I'm not successful? What if I'm, you know, either a fraud or, you know, made fun of, or what if I am successful? What if I do, well, will that change me? Will that change this? So-and-so ended up getting a lot of success and look what happened to him or he or she is, you know, there's all those thoughts, that inner dialogue racing through one's head. So just, I don't think we stated it this way, but it's sort of like, there's this fear of failure yeah. and then there's this fear of success. Yes. <laughs> so how do you win? I mean, when you're working with an artist, how do you sort of navigate that, those twin fears? Well, you have to find out what they really want for their business and personally and working with them and also helping them keep focused. And that's why, you know, I became certified in the infinite breath method started by Greg Mannion, a former street performer and a recovered alcoholic who created this. And I said, that's what I'm going to add to my artistic programs because not just the business and the outreach, but also real world techniques that you can use to ground yourself in tough situations and how to deal with the resistance. And I'm just talking people through, because a lot of people have a lot of resistance and fear being seen writing their first email or going on social media or even they're ashamed that they want to be an artist and make money because there's still that starving artist alone in the studio thing. The whole collaborative, you know, artists working in collaboration has been around for a while, but there's still that I have to shield myself. Other artists or other creative people are competition and still the whole, oh, artists don't make any money. There's still that, I don't know, or they're taking advantage of, there's still that sort of, I don't really know how to describe that sort of attitude. Yeah. It's sort of a, an in-place dynamic and every artist that wants to, you know, make something of themselves has to kind of push back against that dynamic. And, and that maybe that's sort of a market resistance. It's sort of something on the outside pushing on the artist's success as well. So in addition to the breath work, what are some of the other things you might recommend for somebody that's in the moment being, you know, having resistance or facing resistance? How do they break through that? So there's a wonderful person, author, Shirzad Shamin, author of Positive Intelligence. And I did one of his programs and also where you identify your saboteurs, like things that you have a tendency, you know, he has this you know, little you know, test. It's not really a personality test, but some people are more restless. Some people are more controlling and they give you percentages of control or judge, you know, so that you can recognize them and helping you know, knowing yourself and recognizing your inner saboteurs in the moment, you know, when you're judging someone, when you're judging yourself, if you tend to be a people pleaser and playing with that, recognizing that, not necessarily condemning it, but recognizing it when it comes in the moment and either, you know, take a breath, feel the rising and falling of your chest or stomach, rub your fingers together just to get yourself centered, 
just real world quick things. You don't have to go into a meditative state because I know a lot of my clients are busy and can't be doing that when they're at an exhibit talking to you know visitors, but just things that you can do just to put you back in that center and recognize when those situations, when you may be ultra critical of yourself, when you you know, maybe trying to control everything or you're super restless and can't, you know, focus on a task and you're jumping here. And then I know that's me. I get pretty restless and yeah. So it sounds like those like breath work and slowing down and being in the moment works when you're in the thick of it, when the resistance is hitting you right now, what can you do to kind of prepare? Like what are the things you can do before the resistance comes so that the resistance is easier to kind of push through? I hear people talk about putting in the reps like practice or, you know, et cetera. Yes. So, you know, Shirazad Shamin has this whole like PQ gym sort of thing. You practice these things before it hits. I'd say taking care of yourself, having a ritual, like it may sound really silly, but you know, whether it's, you know, reading something, you know, consuming content that's really good and positive, whether that be meditation or that reading or, you know, doing an exercise class, just having those moments on a daily basis doesn't have to be a long time to prepare yourself and to, get your day going on the right, the right track. So you already have some wins and you can face those challenges a lot easier. I love that resistance because you already have some wins under your belt. You're healthy. Hopefully if you exercise, the endorphins are flowing and you can handle those situations and, you know, challenges. I love that. You know, I had a, this is probably 18 years ago. I had a coach and my coach said, you know, Jonathan, here's your list of 15 things and you get four points for this one and six points for this one and five points for this one. And we sort of gamified my day. And there was like many weeks in a row where the only points I got were my morning workout and my morning meditation. Like I, I didn't, I was too afraid. I didn't make the calls to clients. I didn't make the calls to potential prospects. I didn't make, I didn't put in the effort on the business side, but I put in the effort on the personal side and doing my morning routine. And it, it kind of all fed into it, like getting those points in there and getting those things done enabled the rest of the stuff. So it's like having that routine. I, I don't think that's silly at all. I think that's critical. I think that's a, a really important part of being successful. And I love the gamifying thing. Cause some people, if you don't make it fun, they're not going to do it. If you make it like you have to do this, you have to do that. Or they're, they have that inner voice that says to themselves, you have to do this or else you're a failure. Oh, you only did, you know, 10 minutes of meditation, not 20. Oh, you failed. You know, they're not going to want to do it. So it's recognizing that inner voice. And I used to think that it would be sort of a, if I don't have time to work out lengthy, how can 20 minutes help me? But now I embrace that. If I only have, you know, 20 minutes or I only have 10 minutes, it's better than none. I have my express morning routine and it's still a win. And I still feel great. That's great. It's yeah. awesome. I did want to put this piece in there. A lot of people talk about, we get stuck on what the outcomes might be. We get stuck on, you know, what I want to have happen. And really, sometimes it's important just to put your head down and focus on the inputs. You know, do your workout routine, even if it's 20, 30 minutes, meditate, have your breakfast, you know, sit down at the keyboard and just start typing, you know, and see what comes out. Like that's just do the inputs and, and let the outcomes, you know, let the outcomes take care of themselves. I agree. Like you just have to start. And sometimes when I'm writing emails, I was so resistant to start my email list. Now, if I have an idea, I put it in the draft because now I have templates. I walk away from it for a while especially if it, like before I'm going on a trip or, you know, I'm doing something else. And then I go back and look at it with fresh eyes and you've at least written something there. Even if it's not the finished product, just get something down. Sometimes it's just, you know, in other situations, good enough and done is better than just waiting for that perfection because the procrastination will just eat away at you 
And you could miss that window if you don't. And of course, it's a learning experience. If you don't submit something, you're not going to learn what you can do better because you never, you never took the jump. I think it's Seth Godin, actually, that talks a lot about just ship it. Like, yeah, yeah just get it out there. Get it out there. Get some feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, people will tell you, hey, this is great or this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Then you know what to do next. Like, you can improve. You iterate that way. No, totally. Seth I agree. Godin. It was Seth yeah. Godin. Yeah, was it? I thought I was Seth Godin. So how does resistance show up or, or does it show up in your work with boards? Oh, gosh, the failure to action especially if a board is approaching, you know, a lot of boards are experiencing this younger, how to recruit younger people, the later twenties to mid forties, because these people have careers and families. And, you know, I'm a bit of an anomaly because my children are parakeets. And so I have time for this, but you know, most of the people they have, you know, families and, and children. So the resistance is getting, you know, going out there and recruiting, changing the way things are done and the different kinds of activities, you know, and I noticed a lot of these boards, it's not their, oh, we don't want to change. They'd love to have younger people take over. They'd love to step down. They also, they're kind of upset that more people aren't stepping up. It's just a different way of stepping up because the commitments are more, are different, like with yeah. that late twenties to mid forties group. So there's the yeah. resistance there. It's the old guard versus the new guard. Yeah. And times have changed. I think you mentioned that you know, the two, I think, did you say you got out of college 2008, that time frame? 2006, yeah. 2006, so, right. Yeah. So that, that time frame is a rough time to get started. And so those are the people who want to have joined boards and they've, you know, they've been battling so long. It's tough to get them to do that, I think. Maybe that's part of it. Hey, let's kind of change gears to pricing. Like I've worked with so many people over the years that, and I, there must be eight different you know, someone that wanted to do some consulting around social media, someone that wanted to do some design work, and they would, every single one of them underprice what they're doing for me. And I know what the market is, and I'm more than happy to pay them that the less amount, but I keep telling them, hey, raise your rates. And why is that such a, it's such a strange thing. So why do people go in thinking that they're not worth much? Sometimes people don't know they haven't done the research or they're like, when I started, I was afraid, oh my God, what if they don't like my work and they have to, and they come after me and blah, blah. I had all these fears. Sometimes it's just the fear for that or the fear of not delivering or the imposter syndrome. And that's why people undercharge or they really, they say, oh, that's going to be easy. Like I've done this for a client before. I said, oh, that's easy. I just have to set this up this way. It'll be smooth sailing. And I miscalculate. Because there are hiccups along the way that you take more time to do it. That's a really important one. Not just because there's hiccups, but there's often scope creep. Like you'll, you'll price something out and you'll price it for this thing. And then the customer will say, or the client will say, well, can we add this and this and this on it? And you should go back to them and say, well, yeah, we can, but that's, you know, doubling the time spend. So that's going to double the cost. And right. sometimes you go, yeah, sure, we can do that to make sure that they like us. Whereas it, it is a financial thing and we should probably right. keep that in our minds. And also, or you could say, you know, I can include this, but if you want to stay at this price, you have to give, you know, this it has to be this or that, you know, we could trade this for that. You know, it's also a lot of artists like to, you know, going back to the pricing, a lot of people say, oh, let's barter. And then there's that element. And then there's. Yeah. I'm not sure how to ask this question, but I'm going to struggle through it here for a second. How much does the ability to sell or I'm assuming a lack of sales training come into this when we're talking about literally artists, painters, sculptors, writers, 
Yeah, a lot of fine art schools don't teach selling. They're starting to do that now. And there's a lot more online resources and a lot of these art authors, you know, that offer courses and books on teaching art sell. But in the traditional academics, you were taught to have a portfolio, you present it to a gallery and you do exhibits and someone discovers you, you kind of put it in some the power of someone else instead of you, you know, having different channels to sell your artwork. But of course, you know, online channels are you know fairly recent for artists. And especially with the pandemic, that really was put in a new spotlight because, you know, exhibit spaces, you know, were closed or limited hours. And it's, what are they called? NFTs. I guess there's a whole yeah. art thing that came out through NFTs and like the entire landscape of what is art is kind of changing before our eyes. Mm-hmm. So that the digital sales venues are huge maybe more so even compared to the gallery. I guess, is there a difference between fine art that you'll see in a gallery and then art that you can buy online? Or are there no difference? There is. I mean, there's definitely a different, you know, it's, there's the art you can buy online. Lots There's the artists that have licensed their work to be sold, you know, online. And that, that you can make some money if you license things properly. And Maria Brophy in her book, Art Money Success, because she licensed her husband's surfboard artwork. And she showed, you know, how to do it successfully and even mistakes that she and her husband made when doing that was so eye-opening. But that's another challenge. And then there's the fine art where people are selling, you know, pieces for, you know, high price tags, the individual pieces in a gallery set. So it's just a different channel. And also it depends on the market, too. There's so many different markets out there for the various types of art. What do you mean by market? Well, just different people, you know, different types of art in different spaces, you know, there's corporate art, you know, that that art consultants do. There's also, you know, things that people put in their homes and there's just a lot of different, you know, avenues. Do you recommend like an artist who is receiving, what's it called when somebody says, Hey, can you build this thing for me or make this thing for me? That's what kind of art that's, well, it's not remember the word, but if you hire an artist to do a thing, that's a commission. Yeah. You said that commission, right, 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 right. Commissioned art. So do you recommend that an artist that's working in that method has a contract? Oh, yes, and, totally. Yes, absolutely. And what's in that contract to avoid creep, to set pricing, to avoid, you know, how do you make sure that the artist is taken care of in that space? So your rate, your installment, but some places, if you say deposit, that means it's refundable. Also, what you're giving to the person, like if there's preliminary sketches, I'll have you give X amount of dollars by this date. I do the preliminary, you know, the preliminary sketches, any terms that this artwork is only, you know, if you don't want them going off and, you know, doing something, you have to lay that out in the, the contract as well. And there are books like Tag Crawford is a lawyer that specializes in the arts and he writes amazing books about law for artists and they have sample contracts. However, it can, you still should see a, you know, art attorney, you know, the attorney specializing in art, there is volunteer lawyers for the arts, which is a great organization. But if you do a contract through that you find in one of these books, that can save you the time with the lawyer. So the lawyer can look over your contract that you've already started, and let you know, you know, what things that you might want to add or omit. And also, it also depends on what state or country you're in. But an artist should for sure have a contract. I mean, I had a commission done for my boyfriend through one of the artists I knew. She had a contract. It was very simple, plain English, and that it was just very easy to work with her. It was very clear. Yeah. 
I think it's, I just want to reiterate, it's really important if you get something out of a book that you take it you know, to a local artist in your state, because rules are different state to state. One of the things that I think it's, uh, and I, anyone that's creative or anyone in business kind of sometimes does this, where we have a potential client, we have a prospective client or prospective customer, and we just want to bend over backwards because we want the business so bad. And what do you tell people that have that tendency and how do you get them to just say, you know what? Sometimes it's not a fit and you just go on to the next person. You can say this is how you work and this is what I charge. You don't waver on your rates. You said if they want a smaller budget, well, this is what I can do for that budget. But if you can't, you can't. You said there might, if you know another artist that may be better suited for them, you can make the recommendation. Like say you might be better working with this person or you're saying, well, thank you for thinking of me. Uh, but does, you can say it doesn't look like it's, it's going to be a great fit. And you can nicely say that because, you know, I've done that before where I've done you know, freelance drawings for people or even, you know, taking on clients and you design a special program for them or something. And you're like, this really isn't worth it. This is a headache. And you regret that. Do you get into the psychology behind that at all when you're working with a client? Like you say, if you say, this is the way I do it, you know, it may not be a fit. You know, that kind of puts a shit into the universe and the universe, you know, always provides. And so you've said, no, you've helped them make a good decision. You've made a good decision. They're going to be happy. You're going to be happy. And so the next person that comes in might be a perfect fit. You know, have you, yeah. ever, have you use that kind of psychology? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, and of course, you know, if you take on these people, I think the money author, Barbara Stanley Houston says, if you I think it was her that said, if you let go of some of these other you know, opportunities that are you know, weighing you down or under earning opportunities, more will come in because you're making space for these more abundant opportunities. I, she didn't say it in those yeah. words, but she said it. And I thought that was very smart. Yeah. Making space. Like, don't do the little thing, leave the space for the big thing. That makes a lot of sense. So that actually begs the question, how do you know as the artist speaking to a potential customer that, you know, this will be too small or too big. Do you have to go in knowing what your overhead is, what your yes. numbers are. You have to know all those things. Yeah. I mean, you have to know the cost of your materials, how long it takes you to make a piece. There's different cost methods. And again, in Art Money Success by Maria Brophy, she has them all highlighted. So I still have to look back to them. There's the cost price of how much your materials are. There's the pricing by size, the bare ass minimum, what you need to live. and to So just knowing that, keeping track of your expenses and... <laughs> you know, pricing things that way before you dive in, because oftentimes if you're not, you know, covering your costs and also your labor is a cost too. Like it's a, you're investing your time. So you have to be mindful of that and realistic. And let's hope that not all artists work yeah. for the bare ass minimum. Like they, I think we got to shoot a little higher than the bare ass minimum. So we've covered a ton of ground. Every guest that I have on, I want to ask them to simplify things for us. So what is one thing that an artist can, or a creative person can focus on that will lead them to more personal and financial success? So going outside the art world, not limiting yourself to the art world. And the worst thing people can say is no. If you're, you know, polite and direct what you, in what you want in partnerships, I mean, the worst thing they can say is no. Or, and a lot of times that no is maybe a no, not now, you know? So, and if there's free or low cost events, you're interested in kind of, you know, using to network, go. You know, the worst thing that can happen is it's not, you know, it wasn't a good fit and you don't have to go again. You're talking mainly about building your network and yes. don't just build your network with other people doing what you do, but like look around. Yes. Yeah. Great. And then what's one thing that, you know, maybe the creative person or the entrepreneur or the artist 
is doing because maybe someone sold them on this program that they should just stop doing, doesn't work, you know. Trying to beat the algorithms of these social media things or platform, I, I simplified them to things. I meant platforms. You know, these tactics and these, it's not really a strategy, they're just tools. And to think, oh my God, this person's using, you know, TikTok to, you know, blow up. I should do it too. You know, just sort of, you have to test what works for you and fail fast and fail cheap. You know, just because, you know, a marketing guru says that this is the way it doesn't mean that it's okay for you. And sometimes you'll take courses and it's just not the right, it's not the right method. And if you rely upon any one or two of the social media algorithms, they'll change it. So you can be very, very successful. And then the next day you can be out of business. Yes. And that's why it's important to have an email list. Build one, load your list, load a backup because you never know when those, you know, MailChimp or Constant Contact will, something will happen with your account or they'll change something. So definitely, you know, keep your email list up to date, you know, make sure you have a backup file and email is not dead. So like you said, you never know when they're going to change the algorithms or, you know, give more priority to people that are paying for advertising. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone should jump in and start doing paid ads because sometimes it's like a shot in the dark and lost money. So I have my to-do, like make sure I have, my email list is on one of those platforms. I have to go back it up off the platform. That's a yeah. good idea. I, don't, I can't it believe is. I didn't think about that. Yep. So just before we wrap up, just a couple of personal things. We started personal. I, I like to finish it personal. Is there anything that people don't know about you that you really want them to know? Let's see. If I weren't doing this, I would probably be, this is kind of funny, an exercise instructor. I always said, you know, I said, I guess I could do that too, but you know. No, I love taking exercise classes and yeah, that's always something I'd like to just dabble in, you know, just, I don't know. It's just, I always see all these people, I do these online classes and I was like, I want to do that once in a while. Like a guest. Yeah. Would you be the compassionate instructor or would you be yelling at everyone in the class? Just curiosity. I would be more compassionate. I would kind of be the one, you know, work out in the space that you have. Cause I have a one bedroom condo. I also you know, you hear background noise. I have the birds flying around in the background. So kind of, it would be kind of a chaos, chaotic workout class. You know, there'd be birds like flying around your head and just kind of work. It's kind of like when people have children and they're trying to get a workout in. That's the kind of instructor I'd be. I'd just say, this is reality. We're going to do a class yep. today. And that's how I do meetings with clients. And yes, the birds will be in the background. So I had to go to another area of the condo that they weren't at. So I could do this. Except and allow. This is what's happening now. Yes. Can you name a place that you have visited that just had an incredible impact on you? And what was that impact? Going to Spain, like as a host student, having a host family in high school, it was really fun. I got to know the family. I lived with a lawyer and economist and their two kids. And it was really fun. We lived in the center of Madrid and we did so many fun things. And I just love their philosophy over there. The meals too. And the, I just like the European philosophy of things. And it was, yeah. I think Spain is kind of, I don't think Spain is like every other country in Europe. I think the, the two hour siesta in the, in the afternoon, we went to Madrid and we were like, yeah, everything shuts down at two o'clock. What's up with this? Yeah. <laughs> but it's nice. It's it nice. nice. Tell us how people can connect with you, how they find you online. So you can visit my website, which is grassrootsimpactcreativecoach.com. You can find me on Instagram at Emily Laura Durr. My last name's D-E-R-R. It's Emily and then L-A-U-R-A, my last name, Durr. 
And then Emily Laura Durr on Facebook. I also have my business page. The Facebook handle for that is Grassroots Impact Creative Coaching. So hmm. there's a variety of ways to reach me and you can contact me via the website. Great. We'll put all that in the show notes. Great. I just want to say thanks for coming on. And I'm going to list, I'm going to try to pick out all those books that you named. You named just a whole bunch of books, which I think is fantastic. I'll try to pick them all out. If I miss one, I apologize to the author. Thanks for coming on. I'd love to have you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.